This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. And now our kids are being inundated by by social peer influences 24 hours a day. They used to go home. If they didn't like what was going on at school, they could go home and they had a safe respite. And they were good to go and I could recharge and, and have that serenity of family life and, and supportive parents. And now that is no longer uh, a viable thing. You get that bully, that bully's there 24-7 now. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan, and let me tell you about our mission at Parent Footprint. That mission is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. At Parent Footprint, we believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives, happiness, health, and engagement. We believe that awareness is the foundation of your vision of successful parenting. And with increased awareness and intention, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on your children. Today's show is titled Social Media, Depression and Teens with our guest, Dr. John Huber. Dr. John is the chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, a nonprofit organization that brings lasting and positive change to the lives of individuals that suffer from mental health issues. A mental health professional for over 20 years, Dr. John has appeared on over 300 top-tier radio shows, including NBC Radio, CBS, Fox News, and more, and 30 national TV programs, ABC, NBC, you name it. And in addition, he is the host of Mainstream Mental Health Radio, which is heard nationwide and features interviews with today's top mental health professionals. We are fortunate to have such an experienced and wise person with us today. Dr. John, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Dan. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So let's just start big picture here. Um, just tell us just a little bit about um, your organization, um, which is so important to bring not only awareness, but lasting health, mental health change to individuals who do struggle with mental health illness. Well, what, what kind of started is about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, I got privileges at, at a couple of medical hospitals, not psychiatric facilities, but medical hospitals. The doctors were asking me to come there saying, we're not, we're not doing a good service or a good enough service to our patients because there's that mental health component that's not even addressed. And to this day, they still don't even have a psychiatrist on staff there. Mm. I'm the only mental health mm. person they have there. We do have a couple social workers now, but they're limited because of how Obamacare has shifted how they can bill for social workers in hospitals, which virtually they can't. So the hospital eats the cost of their social workers there. So it's kind of a, a crazy conundrum they have. And we would sit in there and they would write orders for me to go see patients and I would walk in 
and 95 to 98% would start yelling at me, I'm not crazy and go on and on and on. And I'm like, no, it's, it's normal for people to be depressed when you're stuck in a hospital for three weeks at a time. You know, it's not that you're crazy. You would be crazy if you weren't getting depressed, you know? And so I'm having to go through this whole storyline with every single patient and make connections with people who, you know, are World War II veterans, you know, veterans from the Korean War, you know, older people who mental health was taboo completely. Mm -hmm. So after complaining to the doctors for several years, <laughs> they said, look, you need to do something about it or quit whining about it. So I started mainstream mental health to destigmatize mental health. A lot of my family, my friends, my, my nephews right now are military. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started looking at that and I'm seeing that, you know, it's, it's on average 130 days for a veteran to go see a therapist at the VA. I've gotten calls from parts of the country where it's 13 months for them once they decide to see a therapist wow. and they schedule with the VA to go and talk to that. Now, if you know veterans, you know that, hey, they don't like to get help, especially mental health. So if they're asking for it, they need it today. They don't need it 13 months from now. They don't need it three weeks from now. They need it today. And it explains why we're losing 20 to 22 veterans every day to suicide. So my job at that point was to, I've got to break this stigma. Mm -hmm. So we started doing that. I got involved with some movies, uh, Red Stripe, is, or Blood Stripe, I'm sorry, which is on Netflix, an amazing example of what PTSD is. But my work history, I started as a school psychologist. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, pe people are bringing kids to me, and they were bringing kids to me before, but now they're bringing kids to me because the kids are like, why do you have to label me? What, what is going on with this? You know, why I'm not crazy. So I sat and I started explaining to them. And all of a sudden, you know, as you said in, in my introduction, you know, I'm on radio and television. I'm, I'm on a radio show or a television show every week out of San Diego. Uh, I, I'm on Newsmax. I'm on Law and Crime. I've been invited now to go and be on the new Court TV. Um, and all of a sudden, people are listening. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been on WFAN, which is the benchmark sports station in the nation. The first one in New York City, they have on Sunday mornings at six o'clock, they have a million wow. listeners. And that's, that's unfathomable. Right. And when I go into New York City, they give me the show for an hour to two hours. And it's a sports show. And they let me talk hmm. mental health. Wow. And I get slammed by phone calls the whole time. I, I, I literally cannot go on whatever I want to talk about. I just start answering. Well, so this, where, so so this voice is I, this opportunity to have a voice to spread awareness and help is, is huge. Absolutely. And, you know, we are about breaking the stigma because, you know, that stigma of mental health is so scary when you don't mm -hmm. understand it. You know, when somebody says you need to go see a therapist and, oh my God, I'm going to be yeah. brainwashed. Yeah. No, you're not. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. When I get people say, well, so what do you do? Oh, my kids love this, this one. What do you do? And then I say, oh, I'm a psychologist. And, oh, I better stop talking. You're going to read my mind. You know, like this, that, that myth, we get it all the time. Absolutely. I go to a dinner party and I... I used to tell the story that I was a shoe salesman because I didn't want to change people's attitude. And then I'm flying back from Miami one day and I had a long week. I, you know, I've been working 12 hour days. I get on the plane and I'm thinking, okay, I get three hours of sleep. And probably one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life sits down in the chair next to me. And I've got my pillow ready 
And she goes, so what do you do? Oh, I'm a shoe salesman. Well, that was a bad mistake. She happened to be a model and just done a three-day shoot on shoes and her feet. And for three hours, all I hear. So I yeah. just give yeah. that up. I'm a psychologist. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mike, I have a, a colleague whose dad uh, was a psychologist, but before that, he was a plumber. And so he just went with, I'm a plumber. He just said, he fell after years, like, it's just easier. I'm a plumber. People had less questions. Okay, so in terms of um, mental health and this, you know, you started to see teens, children and teens, as I do, and now we know, and and, and raising some, um, this whole screen world we're living in, new frontier, we're trying to figure out uh, the positives, the negatives, and all that, and and more and more we're hearing that social media can be linked to increased depression and anxiety, and now there is a new study which once again says social media is linked to depression among teens. So tell us about your experience with this. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting because the only other media that was kind of like this was television, and it hit us with two or three channels, and it was only on for certain amounts of time during the day, and then finally it got from you know like six in the morning till midnight. And, you know, we had decades like that with four or five channels. And in the 70s, we had some, ca- you know, cable companies come in. And we had 20 or 30 channels, local access TV. Then the 80s kicked in. We had major movements and broad cable intervention across the country and satellite. Now we got 300 channels, but it doesn't occupy our day like it, we thought it was going to. And part of that reason is we were able to grow with it. With social media, smartphones hit in 2007. It's now 2020, so 13 years ago. And we have been chasing to catch up since then because literally overnight, there was no preparation and we didn't know what was going on. And what we found are some amazing facts. Goal-driven behavior is good for us in real life. Well, we also find out that goal-driven behavior is okay on screen time, whether it's your computer, your laptop, and iPad. If you're doing spreadsheets, working on a report, doing things where you have a beginning, a middle, and an end, Mm -hmm. see what's going on. But unfortunately, the social media is not like that at all. And now our kids are being inundated by, by social peer influences 24 hours a day. They used to go home. If they didn't like what was going on at school, they could go home and they had a safe respite. And they were good to go and I could recharge and, and have that serenity of family life and, and supportive parents. And now that is no longer uh, a viable thing. And it's pretty scary because, you know, we had that. Why, why don't our mm-hmm. kids have that? You know, and it's, it's a sad thing to think that they don't, but it's true. They don't have that. And Right. You get that bully, that bully's there 24 right. 7. Now. And, it, and it's um, what I've seen with my clients is this choice is, well, I'm going to shut it off. I'll t- it's like a black or white choice. Either I'm on it and I have to know what's going on, or I'm totally out of it and I'm ostracized because I don't know what's going on. It, like, it doesn't leave a lot of room for being connect- like connected. I have my air quotes here, being connected with what's going on and having health in those situations. Because as you said, there's no escaping it. Oh, and it, it's even more sinister than that. And I, I use that word. I don't think it was intentional. It wasn't a setup, you know. But the, the people who write these programs, the social media apps, 
they're geniuses at human behavior and the algorithms they write. For example, if you put that picture up that you won, you know, your state championship and you're a high school student, you know, you're going to have all your friends are going to like it. But what happens is things like Instagram and Facebook, well, they don't dump all those on there at one time. They trickle them out over time because they understand the stimulus response and that dopamine reaction. You get a little drip of dopamine every one of those likes you see, and it makes you feel good. But it's not the same kind of feel good as when you see your best friend walking down the hallway and you shake their hand, you hug them, you kiss them, you know, and you're not getting the oxytocin, the norepinephrine, the serotonin, and all the other neurotransmitters along with dopamine. You're just getting the dopamine. So a way to look at it is like drinking a diet soda. You get the sweet flavor, your tummy gets full, but there's no nutritional value. So you still need nutrition. Well, with social media, people think they're getting it, but they're not. And we're losing Mm -hmm. that human connection. So where is, what does the research say about where this pivot, like, is there this, okay, after X amount of hours, this happens, not that things are ever that clear, or is it a combination of factors for what's going on with the child or teen and the amount of screen and the type of screen use that they're engaging in? Right. And the type of screen use is important. And, and that's why I talked about goal-directed versus non-goal-directed behavior. If your kids are working on schoolwork, they're legitimately working on schoolwork, that's not going to go after their psyche. That's not going to go after their mood, their affect. But, um, and also, if they're playing those, those, those dungeons where they play these games, but they're on a headset and they're talking with their friends, that's much better. Because if you listen, I listen to my kids. They're not just talking about the game. They're talking about what happened at school today, kind of like we used to do when we were mm-hmm. playing football, mm-hmm. you know, in the backyard or basketball. Yeah, we're playing the game, but, you know, we have moments where we're talking about, oh, man, did you see Mrs. Smith this morning when she got mad when so-and-so didn't turn in their homework? You know, and, and you get that camaraderie there. That type is actually beneficial because it, it, it's building at least the basics of that social communication. What I'm concerned about is that truly non-goal-directed behavior where uh, it's what they used to call grinding, where they just sit there and play the same game, the same activities over and over. And the research shows that time that you're talking about, it it keeps coming back, uh, and and there's some variation. But in general, two hours of non-goal-directed behavior. And what happens is these kids start exhibiting uh, the, the fundamental behavioral effects of depression. They may not report being depressed, but their behaviors, they start withdrawing, they start, you know, not, not, caring about things like food and they're not thirsty and that type of stuff. So two hours is kind of the limit for non-goal-directed behavior. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's kind of a hard mm-hmm. thing as a parent to monitor that because, for example, my son is a musician and he sits on his computer and he composes on the computer with his piano right next to him. So, but sometimes I hear him talking. He's got friends on there, and he's been lucky to make some friends in the in the music industry that are you know professional musicians. And they're like, if they're up at three o'clock in the morning, they'll talk with him, you know. And that's kind of cool, you know. Right. He, he's he's have some has some advantages that some other people don't have, and and he doesn't understand that, you know. He's seventeen years old, and he's had this for since he was sixteen, and he's like, well, doesn't everybody, you know, can't they? They talk to somebody right. in Billy Joel's yeah. band. No, right. they can't. So when okay. you talk about so non-goal-directed behavior, so for listeners, non-goal-directed behavior, we're talking about two hours. And now I'm thinking about 
just drilling down a little further. So when I think of potential non-goal directed behavior, you've talked about games. Um, then there is uh, Netflix or any who any name it, just binge watching your favorite show. That tends to be a common uh, practice of people these days. And then also then there is social media. And I'm thinking social media, we know from other research, there's the lurkers, and then there's people who are active on it. So could you talk a little bit about all of that? Is it all one lump or is it different? Well, it's just like people, you know, everybody's different. Everybody has different tolerance levels. But, you know, the TV watching, you know, the, the shows on TV and the movies and all that kind of stuff, we had to deal with that. But luckily, the produ- the people who produced the shows and stuff, they didn't release all their shows at one time. So this is a new phenomenon. Otherwise, I would say, hey, you know, watch watch the new episode of, on Netflix, and then next week when it comes out, watch the second one. And actually, that's if you go back to the very mm-hmm. beginning, that's kind of how they did it at first. But then they started seeing people would wait till the end of the season and watch everything. So now they've just gotten to the point where they just release everything. And they tend to get more viewers. People want to know what's going to happen. They see the whole storyline. So again, it's them watching human behavior and learning how to profit off of it. But at the same time, we're not prepared for it. We're playing catch up for that. Now, is it is it a good thing? You know, uh, unfortunately, there are real life true stories out there of people who were you know playing their video games and drinking their energy drinks, actually wearing diapers. Adult depends. And playing and actually, you know, young people, 19, 20 years old, dying on their computer, having a heart attack and malnourishment and electrolyte imbalance. That is nuts. You know, EMS shows up and it's like their game's still going. That is nuts. Literally depends on malnourishment. I mean, that level of addiction, which we now know, like in the DSM and the ICD, we have new diagnostic categories of internet gaming addiction and all of this such for for these reasons. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that, that is, I mean, that's pretty easy to spot. You know, if you, if your kid comes home and you don't see them for three days, there's something going on, you know, you need to, you need to be paying attention to that. And it, it's funny, I'm, I'm a forensic psychologist and I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. the Austin bomber. And one of the things that I, I was on Newsmax and they were asking me to profile the Austin bomber. And I said, this is a guy who, who is like that. He goes into his room and he disappears, but he has no male parental figure in the house. He's absentee father. Now, turns out that's what dad lived there, but he never had anything to do with the kid. He would get his dinner and actually dad would walk into his bedroom and shut the door and he'd eat his dinner in, in the bedroom. And a very strong domineering mother who felt like she had to do everything for him. And in fact, if you watch the interviews afterwards, she goes, you know, I, I finished his high school degree for him. You know, not he did it, I did it. I mean, the, just the language, and you can see all that's going on. And watch your children. Pay attention to them. You know, that social media thing, I think, mm-hmm. is, is also very telling. Um, you know, as parents, we have to be involved in our kids' life. Right. We know that. Right. I'm not going to go down that road right now at this moment. But um, when social media gets involved, it, it's, a, it's a little more sinister. You know, we got that same stimulus response, dopamine reaction we were just talking about. But we also have those people in the background who, like you said, lurk and they know everything about your child. So we have to be good and diligent about teaching our kids what to put out on the airways because that in itself is scary, especially for predators like, like pedophiles mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's, 
that's important to know what's going on. How do you do that? And we'll talk about that in a minute. There are some solutions, whether they're tasteful or not, right. you know, what, what your tolerances are. But you're talking about your kids. You're supposed to be their parent, not their best friend. So mm-hmm. So what about what about the notion? So there's there's behavioral um you start to see depressive behaviors, and then also related in the study is anxious behaviors. So can you help everyone understand the difference between those two and how we're seeing the effects of them from social media use? Well, what's funny is the depression and and the anxiety go very hand in hand. You know, as a psychologist, we see it all the time. I get a lot of patients who they're willing to say in the hospital that they're anxious. They don't want to say they're depressed. Um, And that anxiety is oftentimes a symptom of the depression because they're trying to act like they're not depressed and then they dwell on the thought, you know, those negative self-thoughts and, and the perseveration. And they, they start forgetting about what's next. And, oh, physical therapy is supposed to come in. So they start getting anxious when somebody walks in. Oh, I thought you were physical therapy. No, I'm the phlebotomist. Mm-hmm. I'm taking a blood sample. And, you know, it, it, the kids get the same kind of mechanism going on. And you see them not being able to focus very well. Um, it, it's, it's that ADHD-type behavior that we see that really... You know, one of the reasons why 30% of our kids don't respond to ADHD medication is that that medication is just a, a band-aid. Most of these kids are actually suffering from depression, but it's the way kids mm-hmm. express it, not mm-hmm. the way adults express depression. And we need to be aware of that, that they can't focus. They jump from one thing to the next. You ask them a question, and it's like almost like they're starting to stutter, and they kind of, okay, where are you going with this? They also don't have some skill sets perfected. They may have some basics of it, like eye contact mm-hmm. and talking with people. You know, they lose that. They tend to look away. And I I get lots of discussion because we're very involved with our kids. And because of what I do, a lot of people know me. I walk on my kids' campus and it's like, hey, doc, hey, doc. Mm-hmm. And I've never met these people before, you know. Um, and they start asking me questions. And, oh, my child's doing this. My child's doing that. And, you know, the reality is there's a lot of resources right there in school. It's real easy. I redirect them to the school counselors and, you know, we have, I know them that we have good ones at our campus and that's nice, but parents know something's not right. They just can't label it. That's okay. Don't worry about labeling it. If you don't get a good feeling, you get that gut feeling that says something ain't right. And you ask your child, don't be afraid to go and use those resources at your school. Just say, hey, check on my kid. I don't know what's going on. You're the expert. Please let me know what's happening. You know, you don't have to say, well, I think he's depressed. I think he's spending too much time on a computer. I think he's doing this. I think he's doing that. I don't know. Please help me out. Mm -hmm. And the counselors are pretty good at that. And they'd rather be doing counseling than fixing kids' schedules anyhow. So give them something to do. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. It does. It does. So, and let's, but let's break it down further because I'm also, I know as we're diving deeper, I'm also thinking of panning back. So, we're talking about teens here, everyone. And we know that there are general developmental changes that happened that, uh, for any of you who have raised these teens, know that at some point there starts to be some difficult changes in mood, in irritability, in some a little bit more isolation, less talkative, less snuggly, um, wanting more privacy. And so we have that often. Again, every child is different, but we have that as a backdrop. And then we have 
these other symptoms of distractibility, irritability, um, anger, depressed mood, loss of joy in other activities, right? So these things can interact. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's some simple things that we started doing with our kids. You know, now it, it doesn't hurt. And it, it, it was an advantage for us. My wife is an early childhood development specialist. And I, of course, you know, was a school psychologist and became a clinical forensic psychologist. And when our kids got old enough and they wanted to start getting on the computer, every night we would get up before we go to bed and we would change the password on our computer to a 12 to 13 digit number. And we would give them math problems. And when they answered the problems correctly and put the question or the answers in order one at a time behind each other, <laughs> Brilliant. they got the That's new password. Right. <laughs> and as their math skills got better, the math problems got harder. But we still kept it, you know, very simple. And so if they wanted on the computer, they had to work for it. They had and, to go do the math. Yeah, I like that. We made them work and, for it. And that's, then, that's the and then they got little, uh, yeah. little handheld and, devices, I'm guessing. Yes. So what happened at that point is uh, you want screen time. Well, daddy wants hand time. In other words, activities that require both your hands so you can't be walking around with your phone in it. And so by the time my son got to be a freshman in high school, he was a second degree black belt, mixed martial arts and trained in swords and nunchucks and fighting staffs. And, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, he got really heavily involved in extracurricular activities and he got time for time. So uh, the more he practiced, the more computer time he got, more screen time he got. But what happens is, you know, he starts getting tired from all these physical activities. So even though he's got access to a lot more time than he actually can use, he falls asleep. He doesn't use it. So we let nature kind of take its course mm -hmm. and he's learning to self-regulate that. And we monitor and I, I say use technology to your advantage, mom and dad, go get those apps. They're online. They're not very expensive, a couple dollars a month. And they're from, from name that you recognize antivirus companies. Some of them are startups. Um, get those apps to monitor your kids' behavior online. You can block certain things. You can actually make the phone a real phone and only take phone calls from, from grandma and grandpa, mom and dad and brother, sister. So they can't even make calls to anybody else. They can only take them from you guys mm -hmm. during school hours, for example. And you can limit that. And in fact, that's what I have with some of my patients that are having problems in their own life. I have them do that, uh, for themselves to, to learn how to manage their own data time when they're on their, on their cell phone because they end up, you know, not being productive at work. And a lot of my clients are, are you know, entrepreneurs and they're like, wait, I'm not being productive and I may not have a company help me do this. So mm -hmm. we get them to regulate themselves using these apps. And it's real simple. You can also monitor that bully language. And believe it or not, places like Snapchat, um, uh, Facebook, Instagram, they monitor language and they know depressive language. They know what words kids, teenagers tend to use more frequently when they're depressed. They don't want you to know that because then they, 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 they are giving away too much of their secrets, how much they're actually monitoring what we do. But there are some services mm -hmm. out there that are starting to that catch on and hopefully we'll see some of that soon. Uh, the other side of that, we've had, my kids know what I do and know what my wife does. We've had over the years several kids who who their friends with said, mom, dad, you know, something's wrong with this guy. And they show me. And of course they, they were making suicidal threats, or whatever. And we got them help. You know, they came to us. And in one case they had moved 
and the parents had changed their phone numbers and all that kind of stuff. But they showed me their Snapchat and very overtly depressive suicidal tendencies. Um, intent was there. We couldn't do anything. So we contacted Snapchat mm. and they got a hold of the family. And they actually contacted us about a half an I'm hour actually later. I'm actually very happy to hear contact. that and impressed so. with that response. So that, that's something I didn't know. And yeah, right. Yeah. I was. So when so you've laid out different a, a different options for um minimum interference or guide or or oversight or restriction to maximum and just want to share how I think about this with my clients and with my own teens to get your take on this. I think we're talking the same language here. In an ideal situation Screens is like anything else, drugs, alcohol, sex. Like we're trying to raise our kids to be able to regulate, to moderate, to know the upsides, the downsides. And we're trying to get them ready to be on their own, whether it's they're living on their own, they're going to college, and whatever that is, that they're going to be on their own and we're not going to be able to be there for them. So we're trying to educate and collaborate in the process. And just like any other behavior, if they're having trouble regulating, as many adults do in these situations, we are then putting more and more limits, restrictions, monitoring in to help scaffold or support them all the way to very severe ones if things get really out of control. Wow, you put that really well. Excellent. That is exactly that scaffolding model is exactly what we're trying to do because we want them to build independence. We don't want to have to be there the rest of their life. Right, everyone? That's the whole point. They somehow move out. They're on their own. And we once again have a semblance of um, our own lives not totally attached to our kids, right? That's how we have healthy people, healthy adults and healthy young adults. Um, But boy, it's... um, like as you were saying, th- from when we were growing up and what parenting was in our generation, you know, people always say there is always there's always tough stuff going on in a generation, um, whether there were wars or whether there were plagues. I mean, and and we are equally or more living in really uncharted and complex times. That is so true. And and it's going to change. I mean, our kids are going to have kids, and they're going to be, oh my God, what do we do with this? What do we do with that? You know, we don't know what the future holds, but we know it's going to be filled with that new thing that every generation has to deal with, and it's part of you know being human. It's that human condition, and and unless we're going to fall into like the dark ages where we just kind of stagnate and we'll be lucky to survive it, you know, I don't see that happening. Not anytime soon. You know, we worry about about things like nuclear war and things like that. You know, probably the bigger concern today is mutually assured economic destruction. And uh, we'll get out of that. I mean, you know, we we will. We're, we're a very, very resilient species, and we will find a way. So the, the thing that we have to keep in mind is, you know, there's no perfect. There's no exactly the right way. But when your kids are 30, and they saw what you did, they look back and they see the struggles you had, no matter how many things you might have caused or might cause in your child's life, they're going to sit back and they're going to, they're going to know that you did that the best you could and it's going to be all right. They're, they love you. They're going to know you love them. And, you know, we are just uh, uh, that resilient and knowing that somebody was actually out there doing that 
means so much to individuals and uh, it, it makes us complete yeah. and don't be afraid to make your kids mad because if you're not making them mad sometimes you're not being dad you're not being mom yeah that's a really important point and um that brings me to uh, this question that I think would help a lot of our listeners, which is so a lot of listeners are going to be thinking, okay, um, I think my kid's using too much, whether or not yet they are um, showing signs of depression or anxiety, right? This is common, everyone. Everyone, I think most people's teens are using too much. Um, and I need to talk to them. And we all know the complexities of finding the right time, the right words for something to actually land with a teen because you're trying to land something. Do you have advice, words about how they can bring up this topic with them in order that collaborative approach? Right. And, and it, it's kind of interesting because I just read an article um, that showed that uh, something like 76% of parents think their kids are online too much. And of that, 73% believe that it aren't as on as long as are, you know, so, so they think their kids aren't doing it as much as everybody else is. And that's, that's kind of a fallacy. Um, we need to realize, first of all, that that is their life. Unless you see a bunch of bicycles parked in front of somebody's yard, all the kids in the neighborhood are online somewhere. So, you know, it's not just your kid. Don't be afraid. And one of the simplest ways you can do it is start asking them about their friends. Hey, you know, how, how are your friends? What's going on? Oh, so-and-so is doing this. Really? Can you show me? And they pull up their social media. Now, my kids, we started day one. When they were old enough to get on the different social media sites, the first thing that happened is they had to friend us. So we got social media that we didn't even know we wanted to have because my kids wanted it. We had to have it first. And it's just like we did with the video games. We would get the video games first, start playing, and get way ahead of our kids so we knew what to expect and whether we actually wanted them to play those games. So we took time on our own to do that. Parenting's hard work, and it is work. It's not all fun and games. So, you know, the games my kids played on were games that, you know, we felt like developmentally were appropriate for them at different times. And uh, the same thing needs to happen with your social media. Be involved in it. And sometimes I don't watch the social media anymore like I used to because my kids have brought stuff to me so many times that I, I have started to trust them that, okay, when somebody's having a hard time, even themselves, they're going to come in and, hey, you got a minute, Dad? And, uh, and we do. We sit down and have these talks. And uh, it's, it's really a pleasure to watch that. Uh, you know, I taught university for 21 years, and to this day, I still get calls from past students, and they're asking me about their kids. They're asking me about their relationships, their marriages, uh, their businesses, and how should they work with their employees that are working for them. They're having problems with X, Y, and Z. And I sit back, and I, I think back to these young people when they were 18 years old. In some, some cases, one of, one of the young ladies was emancipated as an adult at 16 was in my college classes at 16 years of age and she just had her first child and you know watching her become an entrepreneur a wife a mother it's it's so amazing you know and i look forward to that and i watch it with my kids i watch them develop and grow and it, it's it's such a pleasure so scary at the same time because i know what's out there you know as a 
as a forensic psychologist, I get it really bad because when, when a police officer calls me up and I go, you know, let them in my office door and they start pulling out crime scene photos, it's like, no, there's a reason why my kids never walk to school. So, and it's my problem, but I didn't put it on them. And that's, that was the hard part. We had to talk a lot, my wife and I. Okay, I'm not putting my problems on my kids. I just need to, you know, create some other way for them to get to school instead of having to walk. And and that I just want to. I'm really glad you said that because a, a main component of the idea of parent footprint is we have to really be aware of what we're bringing to the situation. And a lot of times these days, because of all of our legitimate parental fears, worries, and concerns, we really have to be mindful not to put those onto our kids because they still need time to have development, sometimes messy, trial and error. None of us learn that the stove is hot just because someone told us. We all have to touch it to confirm it. That's just like a human fact. And um, it's hard to watch, but we it's kind of how do we give them enough space and take deep breaths and, and step in when we need to, but have a little bit of you know faith and... Um, what's the word? Just a little bit of... Um, just space to allow that kid to get up on that bike, you know, and know they might fall instead of catching them every single time they start to fall. And, and realize they're going to fall. And you need to let them fall and actually let them fail when they're at home, when, when they're young, because you can then teach them the coping mechanisms to survive. And that skint knee and learning how to deal with that problem Believe me, it, it's funny, but it translates to now they're an adult and they found out somebody who works for them has been stealing from them. It's another skint knee. And now they've learned, they learned the coping skills when they were four, how to do that. Exactly. Okay, Dr. John, it is time for the parent footprint moment question. Are you I ready? I am ready. Okay. Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child? Well, one of the things that, that I was blessed with uh, were, were parents who, beyond everything else, they, they loved their children. And, you know, with all their problems, with all their, you know, issues, and my dad was a smoker. I'm not a smoker. He didn't want us to smoke. So he would smoke every night his last cigarette out on the front porch. That was a blessing and a curse at the same time. Um, the blessing was that I had my dad trapped every night for at least 15 minutes. Some nights that was 90 minutes. And it got to the point where we would have these deep philosophical conversations when I was eight, nine, ten years old. And when my parents then were looking at me in high school and they were saying, okay, here are the rules, I knew what, what that was about. I knew that those rules, I may not understand everything there is to it, but there's a reason behind it. They're not just doing it because they want to be authoritative or whatever. And all of a sudden, my friends whose parents were laissez-faire type parents and the kids were out drinking and doing all this stuff, and I, all of a sudden they wanted to spend time at my house. Because my parents, the house rules were house rules. Didn't matter who you were, you know? And I'm like, why do you want to spend time in my house? You know, it's like, you guys have all these freedoms and privileges. And I didn't catch it at that point. 
you know, it wasn't until later when I was actually in college that some of these friends of mine were like, yeah, you know, if it hadn't been for your parents, you know, I would have gone and done this. And remember our other friend who never came around and he ended up dying in a car accident. He'd been drinking and, you know, because he had no limits put on him, no boundaries. And hmm. as an adult, you know, we've talked about several of these things, uh, being a parent, uh, all of a sudden I'm walking into this situation where I've got these little minions of mine and I'm responsible for them. And, but at the same time, I want them to have things I didn't have and I want them to not suffer and stress. But I know that that's part of life. So, you know, when I give mm-hmm. an opportunity to give things to my children, it's, it's kind of a, do I really want to do this or not kind of thing? Do I want to make them work for it? Mm-hmm. Or is this just a gift? I want to give them this. And, you know, my, my son decided uh, at 15 that he wanted to learn to play piano. And this is, this is crazy because I use psychology on this. But, but I got him an electronic piano with weighted keys. So if he struck it harder, it would play louder if he played it soft and that kind of stuff. And it was full 88 keys, beautiful sound, portable. And we gave it to him on Christmas. And he got it out and he started playing it. And for about 15 minutes, he just beat on the thing. And I stopped and I go, man, you know how much money we spend on those video games? Go play some video games. So he went and played video games for about an hour. And then he kind of sneaks back out and he starts playing the piano. And my wife and I are just sitting there. We're letting him go. About 15 minutes later, dude, I'm telling you, we spent a ton of money on those video games. Go play those video games. And we kept telling him to quit playing. But we would let him play and we wouldn't, we weren't mean about it. But he would go and acquiesce. and. All of a sudden, you know, my son played harmonica since he was three. I played music, and he couldn't get his hands around the guitar, so I bought him some harmonicas. In about three weeks, he taught himself how to play harmonica. Well, we're sitting there, and in about a week, my son is teaching himself how to play piano. About three months later, he goes, hey, I'm playing at this place. Y'all should, you know, and we knew he'd been playing because, you know, we're there. We're like, oh, okay, so we show up. My son pulls out his harmonica. He sits down at this piano. There's 400 people there, and he starts playing Piano Man by Billy Joel. And he gets a standing ovation awesome. with 400 people there. And he got his piano three awesome. months earlier. You know, five wow. uh, by May, he did a show with almost 1,000 people in it. And last summer, we were up in, in New York. I go to work. I go to New York a lot. And so on a whim... Uh, my producers and me, we just started calling all the band members of Billy Joel. One of them called my son. And I just, for five minutes, his birthday's coming up. He loves Billy Joel. You know, just five minutes. The guy was on the phone for an hour and a half. My son was talking music theory that he taught himself to this guy. Two hours later, we get a call from Richie Cannata, which is Billy Joel's first saxophone player, going, hey, I'm in town in New York playing. I'd love to meet your son because John Scarpola said that, that, uh, your kid was amazing. And I'm like, okay, you know, so my son hadn't been playing for a year and a half and he's got these guys, you know, so we show up at the show, there's a table right on the front of the stage that's reserved for, for us, for my son. You know, he plays a couple songs, Richie does. He comes down, sits down with my son and he introduces himself. You know, he's like, Hey, I've been playing professionally for 50 years. 
you know, I'm glad to see you're interested in music. And my son goes, yeah, I've been playing for 15 months. And he kind of gets this weird look on his face, like, what? 15 months in, in uh, whatever. And he just kind of gets back up on stage. A couple songs later, he pulls my son up on stage, kicks his piano player off, and puts a microphone there and tells my son, okay, we're following you. What are you, what are you playing? And he goes, I'm playing your state of mind. He said, I'm in New York. And Scarpa, or Johnny or Richie Canada goes, you know, the only person I've ever played that live with is Billy Joel. But if you got the balls to ask for it, I'm going to play it tonight. And the backup band was Steely Dan's band, not the two lead guys. One of them's passed wow. away. And my yeah. son's up there on yeah. stage with Steely Dan, Richie Canada, and he's got the balls to play a, a Billy Joel New York State of Mind song. And it was amazing. It was so surreal. And my son, like the next day, is like. Yeah, it's no big deal. Everybody gets to do that. And, huh. and that's when I'm like, no, um, you're, it's not, you know, but that's great. I'm glad you feel that way. He's not, you know, very humble, doesn't brag about it or anything else like that. But that's when I was feeling like, wow, I, I facilitated that for my kid. And that was a gift, mm-hmm. you know, and he earned mm-hmm. it by playing that. And he got up on stage and it was great. It was amazing. And everybody had a good time. And, you know, he's got these people's phone numbers on his, on his cell phone. And he, you know, it, it's, it's just, I'm floored by Amazing. This. And, you Amazing. Know, I feel like. Cause you bought I him a piano. Something. You bought I'm him a piano. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you bought him a piano and look where it went and, and, and it went away from video games. <laughs> oh, but he still does his video games. He's got one game he plays, but it's one of those games where yeah. he wears the headset and he's got six or seven of his friends who play it. And they sit there and they talk about school and girls and all that kind of stuff. So I'm okay with that. Nice. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. John, thank you for sharing your insight and experience and wisdom with us today. Um, really appreciate it. Would you let everyone know where they can um, learn about all of your um, media and where to continue to follow you? Probably the easiest way is just to go to my website. And, you know, this is a volunteer basis. My, my nonprofit is volunteer. And, you know, I do probably 80% of it myself. So we, we don't update as much as we should. If somebody wants to volunteer, contact me. We can maybe work something out. But right now, the best way is to go to the website. It's got all my social media links. Uh, my YouTube channel is connected there. Also, you know, I'm on all the all the podcasts, my own little mainstream mental health radio show. And we record and we try to broadcast these as, you know, limitations allow, you know, you may, I, I, am assuming you're going to let us repost it on our stuff and make connections. Absolutely. Absolutely. uh, uh, Spotify is really good. It has just about everything I've done on radio, but my website is mainstreammentalhealth.org. The easiest way to get there, because that's a lot to remember, is drpsycho.org. That's D-R-P-S-Y-C-H-O dot O-R-G, drpsycho.org. You heard that from Dr. John Huber, otherwise known as Dr. Psycho. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dr. John, thanks again. Uh, have a great day. And for all of you listening, remember... To be the person you want your child to become, they're always watching, they're always listening, they're always modeling. Be honest, be authentic, be open. We're learning along with them as we go, and it's your humanness humanness that they will appreciate and remember. 
Check us out at parentfootprint.com. Subscribe to the podcast. Tell friends and ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave?